This is the Behind the Pulpit podcast with Will Durbin. Here we talk with great church leaders about insights and stories they have that have been crucial in helping them to live a disciple's life. Okay, our guest for this week. We could not be more excited about the, our guest, Mr. President Tad R. Callister. Uh, Tad is best known for his time serving as the General Sunday School President and as a member of the Presidency of the Seventy. Brother Callister holds a bachelor's from BYU, a JD from UCLA, and a master's from NYU. He's the grandson of LeGrand Richards of the Quorum of the Twelve, and he and his wife Catherine have six children, and he has published five books. Brother Callister, thanks for joining us. Right, it's good to be here tonight with the two of you to talk about racquetball and how we can develop those skills in our lives. You were uh, talking about, uh, like I said, we wanted to talk about the Infinite Atonement, but... Do you have any plans for writing like a, a pickleball for dummies anytime soon or anything like that? <laughs> Is this on the air? <laughs> yeah. Huh? Yeah, we're rolling now. No, I'm. Uh, it's really racquetball. Pickleball is uh, is uh, a great sport, but not the one that I love. I love racquetball, and uh, but no, no, uh, no designs to write any articles. I'm just trying to learn from other people and get better at the time. Yeah. When did you like pick up racquetball? Well, I picked it up years ago uh, when I was about 30, and then I played for about five or six years, and then because of church assignments and other things, I didn't play for about <clears throat> for about 30 years, and then uh, and then about three years ago, I decided I want to get back into it, and I went over to the physical fitness center and found out there was a group of guys who played at 5:30 a.m. Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, so I started playing with them. And, uh, and then a group of eight to 10 of us decided to play in the Senior Olympics this year. <laughs> and so we went down and had a great time. Wow, wow, years. So as soon as you, you know, if you're not being Sunday School General President, then you're a racquetball guy. That's kind of how it rolls now? Well, you've got, I've always liked to have some physical exercise, always. And I used to like to play basketball. I played a year at BYU on what was then known as the freshman basketball team. They used to have a freshman team and then the uh, varsity team. And I played freshman, I was actually second string and, and uh, not good enough to make the varsity, but it was fun to play on the freshman team. I actually played against Elder Holland, what? who played for Dixie. Oh. He was a return missionary and he was going to Dixie at first. And uh, I was going to BYU and on the frost team, I hadn't gotten on my mission yet. And we played against each other. Of course, I wouldn't have mentioned that unless we won the game, of course. <laughs> so I've, I've heard multiple things about Elder Holland on the court. What was your experience with him? Well, I, I, it's honestly hard for me to remember, but you know, he, he obviously was going to be very aggressive in a right way mm-hmm. and very competitive, <laughs> but also very pleasant to, to deal with. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Kind of the same way it gives talks, just with a little enough fire to sit your eyebrows, right? Yeah. Exactly. But with full, full, filled with love. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's Elder Holland for you. Uh, so we just want to kind of hop right into the Infinite Atonement a little bit because we both read this book uh, as a project for the semester, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, but we wanted to ask you first: is we're assuming that you didn't wake up one morning and just had a mass inspiration for writing all of the book, right? I'm assuming it was line upon line, precept on precept. So. It, Take us through kind of how you came to under, gain from what I can see such a deep understanding of the atonement. How did you study throughout your life that gave you those kind of insights that you wrote about? Well, 
Well, I've always loved the scriptures and uh, in our law practice, it was my dad and two brothers and myself. My dad always made sure that we studied the scriptures first before we did law work. And uh, I always felt like that would help make me more productive and, and secular as well as spiritual things to study the scriptures and discover the correct principles there. So at one point I decided I wanted to take a gospel subject uh, every 30 days and I would list all the questions that I had and I would try and answer those questions and I would try to write on it because I know when you write it forces you to crystallize your thoughts. It forces you to find the soft spots in your reasoning and then try to address them. And so the first one I wanted to do was on the Savior's Atonement because I had a lot of questions about that. And after 30 days, I thought, well, I, I, I got to keep going on this because I still have a lot of unanswered questions. So that became another 30 days and it lapsed into 10 years. And after 10 years, the thought crossed my mind one day, I wonder if this could be a book. I've never written a book. I didn't like English classes. I was like a math and science guy. I thought maybe it could be a book. So I wrote for another seven years after that, 17 years. And some of the things I learned along the way before I finally just stuck it in the mail and sent it off to Deseret Book, I didn't know a soul. I sent it to Bookcraft, they rejected it. And Deseret Book, which I'll say in a moment, but some of the lessons I learned, one was that uh, it was helpful to give the book to many other people to have them read it and get their critique and not be defensive. And I had one particular lesson I learned. It was uh, I invited the senior attorney of Latham and Watkins, one of the largest law firms in California, who was a member of the church, very frank, very direct, very bright, to review it. And he came over to our law office, and we went to the conference room, and I remember he kind of just attacked me on some issues. And I thought, well, I'm an attorney, and I was ready to fight back. And a thought crossed my mind, uh, do you want to win an argument, or do you want a better book? And I thought, I want to book so I kind of bit my tongue and I listened and I learned a lot and, uh, and I engaged in I think it was a calm dialogue and that was one lesson I learned another lesson I learned along the way is there was a temptation when I wrestled with a scripture or a question to go to the commentaries to try and get the answer and finally the impression came don't do that try and find the answer yourself first found when I did that, I would spend the time just thinking about it and pondering about it, that usually some answer would come. And then I would go to the commentaries, and sometimes the commentary would have exactly the same answer I did, but then it was mine, not the commentaries. And sometimes I had a different answer. And I realized then that if I had gone to the commentaries first, it probably would have prejudiced me, and I would have never gotten to that conclusion. And so after... Uh, writing and rewriting. I did have uh, a former bishop say to me, Tad, it would be helpful if you would read the book in the presence of some other people. When you read it, you just pick up things that you don't otherwise pick up uh, in a nonverbal uh, review. So I read it in front of about seven or eight people that was very helpful to me. And when you read it, kind of embarrassing sometimes, you think about that, that's not a word I should have used, or that thought's incomplete. But that was a very helpful exercise to me, too, in trying to refine it and perfect it. And then I finally submitted it. I just stuck it in the mail and sent it off to Deseret Book, and I waited and waited and waited, and finally I called them. And they said, oh, we are interested, but it has a lot of doctrine, so we've sent it down to a professor at BYU to review it. <laughs> I said, well, could you tell me who it is? And they said, no, we can't do that. And uh, a couple 
or two later, they said, yes, we're going to, to uh, publish the book, and here's the book cover that we would suggest. And it had on the front, forward by Robert Mellet. That was the first time I learned that he was the one who had reviewed the book and was kindly knew that I had no name whatsoever and voluntarily decided to do the forward for the book. And that's kind of how it came about and some of the lessons I learned. I also learned that my first and foremost source was always the scriptures. That uh, that's where the, the true source is. I think it was Marion G. Romney, you may remember, who said, I'd rather get the wall, the, my water from the source, not downstream after the cattle have waited in it. And he was saying, in essence, commentaries may have their, their place, but they'll never take the place of the water coming out of the source, which is the scriptures. So would you say, it seems like the biggest lesson that you learned through the publishing process and through the writing process, it seems like you learned a lesson of humility, right? Of just being able to accept that criticism, right? Yes, I, and that was, that was hard, honestly, anytime somebody critiques your work, but I found out that if you are willing to accept it, it's much better to get critique from friends than from enemies. And so I would have a lot of people review it and ask him to be honest with me. I said, I need you to be honest with me and critique words or sentences or thoughts, particularly thoughts, so that I could improve it and refine it. And that was one of the, the things that helped me the most was the critique that I got back from people. And would you suggest your mode of study, taking a topic uh, and just studying it for you know, 30 days, like you said, would you suggest that mode of study to members of the church? I would say that there's multiple ways to study. Uh, sometimes I think it's just good to read from beginning to end. Sometimes I think it's good to take a subject and just stay with it and write until about it, till you feel that you have a grasp of it. Um, sometimes to look up what various words mean. I don't think there's just one way to study. But I think it is a mistake. Sometimes people say, well, I read the Book of Mormon 90 times over one person in my lifetime. And I thought, well, that's wonderful. But the real key isn't how many times you've read it. Or sometimes we get caught in the trap of so many pages a day and whatever. And to me, the Lord is, never says anywhere, turn so many pages. It's always feast, meditate, ponder. That's the real way we learn the scriptures. And I think discussing it with other people, discussing it with my wife, like we each individually read the scriptures in the morning, then we read them together, and we have discussions, and I find that's very, very helpful to me, because she'll have insights, being both a woman and just another person that had not crossed my mind before. Yeah, I really like that. I think. On the subject of, of studying, when we're talking about feasting upon the scriptures and not just reading them, it's, it kind of rolls back to what you said in the beginning of how your whole process of, of writing this book started is you just had questions that you didn't know. And so you went into studying with a question, trying to find out what the answer was, and then that led to just more questions and more questions. And then, because like the more you learn, the more you realize that, like the more you realize you don't know a lot. Yes, it's true. And I think another thing that was helpful is to look for principles in the scriptures. And you may remember the scripture on the feast upon the words of Christ. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things that you should do in Second Nephi. And I thought, how do the words of Christ tell you all things that you should do? They, they can't tell me who I should marry in Mosiah or what career I should pursue in Alma. How do they tell you all things that you should do? And then finally, the thought crossed my mind, because they teach you correct principles, and when you read the scriptures, they invite the Spirit so you can use those principles to apply to any situation in life. And I think it's helpful if people will look for principles 
in the scriptures that can guide them in their lives, not just a particular story. Like most parables, for example, will teach you a correct principle, not just a nice miraculous story. Oh, that's definitely true. That's, I think, exactly what we should do with scriptures. And I think you writing about the scriptures is, I think, that's kind of that step that a lot of us miss, at least that I know I miss a lot of the time in my studying, is that that's the ponder part, the writing or talking with your wife about it. And I think that just seemed to add uh, depth to your understanding of the scripture. It seems also that maybe part of the name of the book came from when you started out with 30 days, you thought, this is an infinite study, isn't it? It's not a, it's not a 30 day study, right? No, I thought it would be 30 days. It shows you how misguided I was. And, uh, but I, I think the name of the book came not because I knew I was going to write a book, but because I wanted to find out why the atonement was referred to as the infinite atonement in the Book of Mormon. So that phrase is not used in the Bible, but it's used in the Book of Mormon. Where in the Book of Mormon again is that used in the Bible? You find it in Second Nephi, uh, I think it's 9, Jacob, and Amulek uses the phrase. So they both use the phrase infinite atonement. And that was one of the great truths I learned too that was a testimony builder for me for the Book of Mormon is how many insights the Book of Mormon gives into the atonement that are not found in the Bible or not fully developed in the Bible. It was a remarkable testimony of Joseph Smith and the revelation he received into the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's awesome. Yeah, just on the way up here, we were talking about kind of like possible questions and that was exactly one of mine is like, through your study of the Book of Mormon and of the atonement in the Bible, what are, what are some of the things that the Book of Mormon has taught you that no other book has, and just like you said, is like the infinite part of it is mentioned only in the Book of Mormon, and, and yeah, that's really cool. I, I think in that connection, just one thought that the Book of Mormon clarifies is the Book of Mormon helps, the Bible helps us understand the redeeming powers of Christ's atonement, that he redeemed us from physical death, he redeemed us from sin. The Book of Mormon teaches those, but it also teaches us about the enabling powers of the atonement. That he has enabled us, uh, the enabling powers could comfort and strengthen us in our afflictions, and perhaps the most important, the climax, is that the atonement not only can cleanse us, it can perfect us. And that's why the very concluding verses of the Book of Mormon share the climax of the purpose of the atonement, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and then it tells us how through the grace, or we might say, the enabling powers of Jesus Christ. And to me, that is some of the beauty of the Book of Mormon. It tells us the consummate purpose of the atonement of Jesus Christ is not just to return to our Father in heaven, but become like him, and the atonement makes that possible. I totally agree, and you know, Bednar, Elder Bednar has talked a lot about the enabling power of the atonement, but it seems to me that there's such a lack of understanding of it, not just in the whole Christian world, which there definitely is in the whole Christian world, but even within the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Would you say that that's just somewhere that Satan seems to be beating us right now? Or why would you, in your opinion, say that there's such a lack of understanding of the enabling power of the atonement? Well, I, I'd say one reason is that you have to hunt and search for those enabling powers. For example, it's one thing to say there's enabling powers of the atonement to perfect us. The next question is, how are those enabling powers unleashed in our life? And that was one of the searches for me. For me, I found at least two ways. One is through the ordinances. That's why it says in the Doctrine and Covenants, therefore in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. And when we think about it, sometimes we think of the ordinances as a checklist. But in truth, 
every one of the ordinances unleashes a godly power to help us become like God. When we're baptized, it unleashes the power to cleanse us to become like God. We get the gift of the Holy Ghost that unleashes the power to receive the guide to know how to return to him. Or the sealing power unleashes the power that we can have thrones, dominions, powers, and become like God. And the other way, I think, is through the gifts of the Spirit. It's interesting that when you read about the gifts of the Spirit, you only can have the gifts of the Spirit because of the Savior, his atonement. When you're baptized, you're cleansed, and then you're eligible to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And when you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, you're eligible to receive the gifts of the Spirit. And some people are content with the one or two gifts that their patriarchal blessing talks about. But when you read about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and Doctrine and Covenants 46 and Moroni 10, every place it'll say, desire the spiritual gifts, seek ye after the best gifts. Or in Moroni 10, which is interesting, which talks about being perfected, it lists the gifts, some of the gifts of the Spirit. It says, lay hold upon every good gift. So I think that's another way that the enabling powers of the atonement are unleashed is through acquiring spiritual gifts, which are in truth attributes of godliness. In your opinion, so like talking about the enabling power of the atonement, obviously action, you know, is, is coming with it. You have to you have to put action into it. Um, what would you say to most young individuals, college kids, or, or just any young um, young man or young woman that are that, that hear about the atonement constantly and it's always pressed upon them, but they don't know how, like, if they if it's working for them. Because they, they take the steps that they're given, you know, talk with, talk with your bishop and everything and do all that, but then they still feel as if, you know, that they have sin and stuff. How would you, what would be your advice to them to say what action they need to do in order to, you know, feel that and even how it work? Well, I think the more people study about that's the reason it's important to study about the atonement is the more you study about the atonement, the more you appreciate it and understand how it works in your life as a healing power. Our missionaries used to ask us, well, how do I know if I'm forgiven? And I would always respond and say, well, if you feel the spirit in your life, that's a witness to you that you've either been forgiven or that the cleansing process is taking place. Because the scriptures tell us the spirit cannot dwell in an unholy but you sometimes, and then, then some of them are comforted. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I am feeling the Spirit when I teach the Gospel, so I must be on the right road. So part of it is just acquiring the knowledge so you can appreciate it. Or some would say, how come I still feel guilty, you know, even after I've been forgiven? And sometimes I've compared it to, you know, a stop sign that's to prevent an accident, that guilt is like a spiritual stop sign. It says, you know, don't go down that road, you know, the the danger it can cause you. And that way it's a protection, not a punishment. And then say, yeah, but will it ever go away? I said, well, think of Alma who was recounting his sins. In the very process of recounting his sins, he says the memory of his sins, or not the memory, but the memory of his guilt and the harrowing of his sins was taken away because he became a new creature in Christ. And he was like, like uh, Scrooge and Charles Dickens, he said, I'm not the man I was. So he, he could live with his sins, but it made no difference because he knew he was a completely different person in his life. And I think when people realize that, they realize that the atonement is, in fact, in, in Moroni 10 again, it says that when you have the grace of God in your life, the atonement, you're holy without spot. And that's a beautiful phrase. You know, when you repent, there's no black mark, you know, on your right ankle or 
brown stain behind your left ear that marks the transgression. You're completely pure and holy before God. That's how complete the atonement is. And the more you study it, the more you realize it's true. It's true. I think that's kind of why I was going to ask you about one of the phrases you used in the book. You say the atonement is our singular hope for a meaningful life. And I think that's exactly, you just kind of told us exactly right there what you meant by that, is we need to have those, uh, the enabling power, the redemptive power, without that it's just not meaningful. And what you just were talking about, the stop sign, I remember you used that in your, uh, that analogy in your last conference talk. I right? did in a conference talk. Yeah. So I'm going to get after you a little bit, Brother Callister. It seems to me that you have two big kind of things that you like to just harp on, and in a good way, but I'm not, I'm not knocking that at all. It's you like to talk about the atonement, and you like to talk about the Book of Mormon and its, its witness of the restoration, right? Would you agree that those kind of seem to be the themes that your books have been and your talks have been? Yeah, I would say one other is that ties in is the apostasy and the restoration of the gospel truths through the prophet Joseph. Okay, so I'd yeah. say those are the, probably the three. And I, I would agree with ones. that. I kind of left that one out because it's kind of with the Book of Mormon. But so, now I'd say there's one more. Is it America? Yes. <laughs> uh, don't forget to go buy America's Choice by Tad R. Callister. We have it <laughs> right here. I, um, I just want to say one thing. I, I do try to promote it, but but I don't receive a penny from any of these books. Now, I've never taken a penny from a book. So the reason I like to promote it is because I feel the truths in there are truths that I hope will help people. And I'm I'm rabid about the Constitution and its, its divine origin because I think the truths in the Constitution from the Founding Fathers are consistent with the truths in the Gospel. They go hand in hand. In fact, if it hadn't been for the Constitution, there would have been no restoration of the Church. It would have been impossible. No, exactly. I think that's clearly the case, and I wouldn't argue with that at all. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, it seems that the atonement seems to be a little bit of the spiritually strengthening side, and you do a little bit more of uh, a logical take on the Book of Mormon and a logical take on the apostasy and the restoration of the gospel. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, how do I know you touch on it in the Infinite Atonement, but... Can you tell me a little bit about what role the spiritually strengthening side has had in your life and uh, the intellectually enlarging side has had with, with your testimony? Well, I'd say honestly they go hand in hand. The Lord reveals in two ways, we know, in the heart and the mind. And I think sometimes it's the heart, sometimes the mind, but lots of times it's both. In fact, the Lord said in Isaiah, come let us reason together. And Paul, when he went to the synagogues on three occasions, it tells us in the New Testament, he reasoned with the people. And so I think part of gaining a spiritual testimony is like President Eyring once asked President Lee, how do you get revelation? I don't know if you remember the answer. President Lee said, do your homework first. <laughs> and I think part of gaining a spiritual testimony is doing your homework. That's what the promise in the Book of Mormon says, if you pray with real intent, you know, having faith in Christ and feasting upon the scriptures. And I think that every testimony has an intellectual component, a mind component, and a heart component. And I think the more you can study and reason, the more you can develop your spiritual testimony. I think it's part of it, but not all of it. So it, it seems that, and like, maybe I totally have this off, is your study of the atonement, does that help you to know that Christianity is true, 
and then your study of the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith, does that kind of then say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is Christ-restored church? Or did the atonement teach you that as well? I think they go hand in hand. In fact, a lot of people who, um, who either leave the church or have doubts, they, they sometimes, you know, we say to people, we'll put that question on the shelf, and they say, well, my shelf is crashed because I have so many questions. And I think my response would be, well, then you didn't have the right pillars holding up the shelf. There's two pillars that hold up the shelf in my mind that make up your testimony. One is the testimony of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world that makes you a Christian. And the other is the Book of Mormon that helps you know that Joseph Smith was a prophet, and if he was, the church was restored. And if you have those two pillars, you can have all the questions you want on the shelf, but you won't have doubts. That'll be the difference. Wow, that's insightful. Yeah. In the recently published article that you did, the fence at the top or ambulance at the bottom, but we did want to touch a little bit on the article. I was on I'm on Twitter quite a bit, and I was blown away with uh, when that article was published, the pushback. I was like, what did, all right, what did Brother Callister say that was so offensive? I just read it, and I was like, and, like, Good insight. It was like Elder like Holland. He took a lot of heat. And there's just certain subjects that are moral issues, that are controversial social issues. And if you discuss them, you're going to get some uh, people who are in favor of it, and you're going to get people who are going to give you heat. And I think the Lord, in a loving way, expects us just to stand up and tell the truth. That's how I feel. Okay. And so that was, well, that was the question I originally had is, uh, were you aware of the kind of the pushback that was going on? I'm yes. Assuming? Yes. So do general authorities, do they pay attention to what members are saying over social media? Or do they rely like, just on what they're seeing on their ministering efforts one-on-one, -on -one, what they're hearing from area authorities? Or how do they kind of gauge what's going on among the members? They have kids and grandkids. <laughs> that's how I find out. Yeah, they're not naive. I guarantee, guarantee you they're not naive. Oh, okay. They know what's either. happening. Because I, I remember when, when that came out, Amanda sent me it, and I, and I read it, and it was awesome. And, and then, um, yeah, I just kept getting sent articles by Amanda of, like, this pushback that was happening and stuff. So yeah. I figured that's... Thank goodness for our kids and grandkids. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, and these are uh, also questions that I might be like, okay, they're probably silly questions, but I just had them uh, as I was reading uh, the book. And you, maybe I just, again, totally off here, but you talk a little bit about the physics of the atonement. Uh, and so... This is what I wrote. I said, the power increases with the acquisition of divine characteristics. And you allude to this idea that Christ reversed entropy with the atonement. Did I understand that kind of like, is that what you were alluding to? What do you mean by that? I mean, I understand entropy, you know, increased disorder across the universe. So what do you mean? I, what, I didn't mean to go into a, a, a deep physical dissection, but the general principle is that things go from a state of order to disorder. But Stephen Hawkins has a great book that talks about that. Brief history of time, right? Yes. Yeah, but that the Savior's atonement does just reverse. It takes chaos and makes it into order. So I was trying to make a simple uh, analogy between, a comparison between the two. And it's not magic, though, right? It's governed, again, by universal law. Absolutely. Natural law, Aquinas-type universal law, right? I think, you know, entropy perhaps is just driven by natural law, but perhaps... Uh, the atonement is driven by the intelligent use of natural law, not just going on its own. Yeah, that's deep for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
I Payne, you have Yeah, I just have one last question about the infinite atonement. My favorite one of my favorite parts of it, um, kind of a long thing it says part of the human experience is to confront temptation. No one escapes. It is omnipresent, it is both externally driven and internally prompted. It is like the enemy that attacks from all sides. It boldly assaults us in television shows, movies, billboards, and newspapers in the name of entertainment or free speech. It walks down our streets and, it, and sits in our offices in the name of fashion. It drives our roads in the name of style. It represents itself as political correctness or business necessity. It claims moral sanction under the guise of free choice. On occasion, it roars like thunder. On others, it whispers in subtle, soothing tones. With chameleon-like skill, it camouflages its ever-present nature, but it is there, always there. Opinion, because it's it's everywhere. Like you said, it's movies, it's television. What's and it's hard to avoid all of these things constantly. So, in your opinion, what's the best way to avoid these and and, and confront them? Well, I I don't have a magic answer, and someone would probably do a better one than I would. But I. I love the 2,000 sons of Helaman who said they obeyed the commands with exactness. I think if we try to obey the commandments with exactness and with cheerfulness, a cheerful heart, and we follow the prophet, uh, even when it disagrees with our personal feelings. I've had times when I would have gone down another road, honestly, than what the prophet said, but I've just made a decision in my life that I'm going to follow the prophet. When he says that's going to take precedence over my will. And I think another is to constantly pray that our thoughts will be pure and clean. And uh, because our thoughts drive everything we do, ultimately. And um, the scripture says, garnish your thoughts with virtue unceasingly, then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of the Lord. And I think if people make an active pursuit in their prayers and fasting to have clean and pure thoughts, that that will govern their response at the right time in the right way. And for example, our daughter Becky, who was about 16 or 17 at the time, was going to a movie at school with a bunch of her friends. There were seven and eight, eight of them. One of them was a member, the others were not. And she was just talking and they went up to this multiplex theater and they bought the, movie, the tickets and they were all going in and she realized it was an R movie. And she said, without even thinking, the thought just crossed my mind, I said to him, oh, uh, I'm going to choose to go to another one, but you can go to that and I'll see you after. All the other friends said, no, we want to go with you. We'll turn the tickets back. They turned the tickets back. They went to the other movie. About two years later, the other girl, who was a fine girl and I think would have made the same decision as she had another minute or two, I remember saying to her in our living room, I wished I had been the one to say, we'll go to another movie. But that was just something that was spontaneous on the moment, I think, because she was living the commandments. She was doing the simple things of praying morning and evening. I think a lot of our generation don't pray in the morning and in the evening. I think that's a very important habit. For me, morning prayer is the most important because it sets the tone and the pace for the day. And I remember being in seminary one morning when I was about 16 and they sang that song, Here you left your room this morning, did you think to pray? And I thought, no, I didn't pray this morning. I didn't pray yesterday morning. I don't pray any morning. I just pray every evening, and I, but, but I changed. And it made a difference in my life. And I think if people just do the simple things, if they really will pray meaningfully every morning and evening, they really will start the day reading the scriptures. They'll, uh, they will fast with meaning. And they'll try and pray for the spiritual gifts, one of which is to be clean and pure. That in those moments of temptation, 
that they'll respond with like our daughter did, oh no, I'm gonna go another path. And would you say that this is a compound effect where, you know, if I live, you know, if I read the scriptures and I pray for one day, I'm still gonna be susceptible to temptation. If I make this a habit and I do this for a year, 10 years, a whole lifetime, it seems that that's what King Benjamin's people were talking about, that they have no more disposition to do evil, right? It's like working out with weights and you get stronger, you know, pound by pound. And you do this consistently and you get stronger spiritually pound by pound, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. I want to attest to that because it, is, it always makes me laugh um, whenever I would talk with church leaders or, or bishops or anything. Just how the simple just pray every morning, you know, read the scriptures every day. They always harp on that and it seems like it's just rum drum every time you hear it. But when you actually apply that into your life and you, you follow that course, you can truly see the difference of what it makes rather than you can remember back in times when you haven't done that. And it's just night and day, and it's, it's insane. Just one last thought on that. I, I remember when I was a state president, a good young man came to me, and he was probably 20 at the time, and he said, I just have these bad thoughts that come in my mind all the time. And I said, well, do you have a you know, a song you sing or a scripture read. He said, yeah, I do it, it helps, but the thoughts still come. And I thought, well, what am I gonna possibly to say to help this young man? And then a thought came through my mind. I said, you like to play basketball, don't you? He said, oh yeah, I love basketball. I said, suppose that the next game, <clears throat> just before the game, the coach calls all the players together and he says, today, no one our team is gonna shoot. We're gonna save all our energy and we're gonna play the best defense that's ever been played. <clears throat> what's the best you could do? <clears throat> he said, well, a zero to zero tie. I said, that's your problem. I'm saying, you're playing defense. He said, do you pray every morning and evening? No, not every morning. Do you read the scriptures every day? Do you stay for the entire time at church or do you slip out early? Yeah, I sometimes slip out to the donut shop down there. You really fast when it's fast on me. I said, <clears throat> you need to take the offense. I said, the other team can't score when you have the ball. It's hard for Satan to tempt you when you're on the offense. Get on the offense. I'll finish with the, that's, I think, Helaman 512, right? It's built upon the rock, you cannot fall. Not a lot of people are falling away when they're doing those things, right? That's right. All right. We're not going to steal any more of your time. We appreciate it. We're going to do a quick rapid fire so you can give us one word answers to these. These are okay. just kind of like. Uh, I think that's enough damage for one night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was good. It was, I think enough I learned damage. a lot. <laughs> enough damage is the right way. Hopefully I'd keep my membership after that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who's your favorite athlete? Oh. Well, I, maybe, maybe Tom Brady. Tom Brady. That's a good answer. Maybe. Your favorite non-church book that you like to read? I like Les Miserables. Okay. Wow, that's that says a lot about you to be able to. It's a long book. <laughs> I read the original version, to be honest. <laughs> the three hundred page one, not the twelve hundred page one. <laughs> okay, what? Tell us about your morning routine. Well, uh, until this happened, uh, three days a week, I'd get up and I'd go play racquetball at 5.30 until about 7, come back, have breakfast. And then uh, I usually would read my scriptures. My wife and I would have our prayers together and our scripture reading. And then I'd do whatever writing I like to do. I like to write while our mind's fresh. 
and then I try to take care of the mundane things in the afternoon that need to be taken care of. Okay. And uh, say you had 22-year-old brother Callister standing right in front of you. What would be the simplest but most um, profound advice you would give him for his life to come? Well, uh, I think the scriptures give it. And saying you don't have to be an apostle, you don't have to be a state president, you don't have to be a bishop to be exalted. The scriptures tell us in Doctrine and Covenants section 14, if you keep my commandments and endure to the end, you shall have eternal life. And I'd say just keep the commandments with exactness, with a smile, and uh, and that will lead you to eternal life. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for your okay. time. You That's bet. All. Thank you.